Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, everybody. On this lovely Monday, right? Yes. Monday, April 4th, 2022. Putting a date marker down today. You know, like the last two Mondays, we've had bad weather. And we're supposed to maybe have bad weather. Oh, today, today. this evening's definitely weather aware. I checked the National Weather Service site. We are in the bullseye for, for bad thunderstorms tonight. So just be aware. That's it. Just There's no watches or anything, I don't think, yet. But there may be some posted. But yeah, we're good. And we're here. And right now, it's just beautiful out. It's it just sure a lovely is. day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. just great. It's just springtime in Dallas. That's it. You get beautiful days. You get you get some bumpy weather. There but we, we need the rain. You know, we yeah, need Yeah, I think we need a lot of rain. So... Not that we would know since our brain gauge broke. Yes, I have to get the little <laughs> rain gauge thing. I don't know what happened, but finally the little glass thing just kind of... Well, it, what happened was it, I didn't empty it and it froze. Oh. And that made it break. It did now survive the Now he's telling me what really happened. <laughs> I'm fessing up for the $7 rain gauge. Yes, that I think I'm, I'm the cause yes. of its demise. Yes. So yes. anyway, well, there we go. Well, I'll run in Hobby Lobby and get us a cute little something or other. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. So let's talk about schedule a little bit because we're coming up on Holy Week, right? Palm Sunday is next Sunday, meaning that Monday, Thursday is a week from Thursday. Good Friday is a week from Friday. And Easter is the following Sunday. Yes. So we will meet on each Monday coming up. Even though the church is closed on the Monday after Easter, we'll go ahead and meet We'll be here. Pat, Patty and I won't be going anywhere. Kind of sadly. The following week after that, we will be gone. Yes. yes. So on April 25th. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm mentally computing my calendar. April 25th. from today. <laughs> April 25th. We will be gone. Just that one Monday, though. We, yes, that's one Monday. And that, and that Tuesday. Because we will be where, Patty? We will be in Nor- Newport Beach, California. We will. We're going to take a week off. It's going to be great. Yes. It's going to be fantastic. This time, we're going to go to Universal Studios. Yeah. We did Disney last From time we were out there. till night. We're going to open it up and shut it down, aren't yes. we? Yes. <laughs> Except this time, cost more. I don't even... It's probably like $100 a person. But for us, it's worth it. You get like... For each one of the attractions... You get to go to the front of the line. And we felt that was so worth yeah, it. Yeah, we'll pay for that. One yeah. time, just one time, not the unlimited. Yeah, no. But, but one time, because no. it's a long drive from where we're going to be. Yeah. It's like, like, you know, almost an hour and a half, so. Aren't you lucky you have a chauffeur? I do. Patty's doing the driving, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the navigator. It works out really well that, that day. It does. For her to drive and for me to navigate and yes. use the phone and do all that Because when Scott's driving, if there's terrible traffic... That all of a sudden we come upon, he'll say, "Find me a way out of here," and yeah. I'm like holding my phone up sideways. And <laughs> so you'll you'll admit to, to not be the best with the phone I'm navigation. Terrible. I am okay. absolutely terrible. So I'm <laughs> um, good at driving. That that's my job. I just didn't want to get myself in trouble. No, there no, no, oh, no, okay. no. It's terrible. Back that's in good. the day, if you guys have lived in Dallas for a while and did any kind of. Um, you know, appointments or whatever, maybe a salesperson like I was, you'd have the book called Mapsco. Yeah. And Mapsco, it had, you had to get a new one every year as the streets changed because, of course, it wasn't digital. And, um, oh, my goodness, I would have to hold the map and then turn it sideways and get me going in the right direction that the map was. It, 
And yeah. talk about a business like Buggy Whips, right? Mapsco, their business disappeared virtually overnight with the advent of phones and maps and navigation. Yes, yes. Wow. Anyway, we're glad y'all are here. We are back to Isaiah. We're, we're, we're kind of bantering a little extra time right now. I don't know why, but... We're ready to go now. This though. Isaiah stuff is is yes. We have to warn you. We have to yeah. warn you. The next two weeks are not going to be the most exciting, but keeping <laughs> the good true news to is, what Scott says, he's going to skip some stuff. But some stuff. We're going to do twenty. Here's here's what we're going to do, Patty. Oh, I keep moving. You keep moving me out of here, honey. I'm not touching anything. <laughs> you did. <laughs> we are going to do twenty two chapters in two weeks. Yes. So it'll be very quick as to not, you know, we don't want to it's miss just, stuff. It just gets very repetitive. Yeah, we we have a feeling right, as I right. looked at the Facebook counter, it would just keep be dropping would, by it, every five minutes more people would the, have dropped. There are just certain places in the Bible that just crushes people's plans to read the Bible all the way through. Yes. And if they make it through, their words just go in one ear and out the other. Of course they do. It's all these place names we don't know, and we don't even really need to know all the place names and everything. And the words of judgment do get very, 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 very repetitive. They do. So anyway, that's my plan. That's the plan I've worked out, and um, I checked a couple resources, and I don't think I'm crazy Okay. about that. In fact, Patty, I'll tell you what, what I did. This is a very good little series for if you're ever going to do a Bible study with some friends. It, each one, each book is in uh, 10 units. And in this 10-unit study of Isaiah, they go from Isaiah 9 all the way to Isaiah 36. Wow. They just skip everything in between. Oh, so wow. I felt pretty vindicated by that. I said, okay, but well, those Andy guys know what they're posted, doing. You can't do 22 verses in two weeks. No. Not 22 verses, 22 chapters. Chapters. Chapters, my friend. 22 chapters <laughs> in two weeks. You watch. <laughs> All right. You better All right. Open I us. better also open us up. All right. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. And we come today to resume our journey through Isaiah. And uh, there are these, these wonderful, wonderful parts of Isaiah that reveal to us sort of the state of the world and, and, and also reveal to us who you are and and um, we just we just pray that you will help us make our way through Isaiah um, to hear your message well and to make uh, good use of our of of our um, enthusiasm and energy um, on this journey. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so yeah, like here's here's the deal. You know, I have resisted for a long time doing Isaiah because I really knew that if you really just try to start at verse 1 and read every single verse all the way through, you would hit these sections in uh, in Isaiah that were just very very repetitive. And and because they're repetitive, it's difficult then to really listen to it in any way or hear it in any way or grasp the larger picture. So, you know, so I sat down and we are at Isaiah 14, verse 1. That's where we're going to start. We're going to read a few verses there to get back into it. And then we're going we're gonna to get a little bit into like a helicopter. And we're going to begin 
begin scanning the landscape. And sometimes we will come back down and land and read, read some of it. And other times, I'm, I've got lots of maps today so that we can get oriented to, about the various peoples, often enemies of Israel, to whom God is speaking. And uh, so I really do think that the best approach for this is is to spend a couple of weeks getting from Isaiah 14 to Isaiah 36. And I know we're not going to read every every verse, but you know when I did Exodus, I didn't there are chapters there that are practically identical that are just a few chapters apart because you get all the instructions about how to build the tabernacle, then you get all the instructions that says, well they did each piece of this and they're virtually repeated and um, so I think this is the best way to do it to help us get the most out of this and not walk away intimidated by Isaiah and just wanting to put it away and, and call it quits and, and never go back to it again as I think happens with people if they're going to do like a read through the Bible in a year I mean, if you're taking small enough chunks, fine. But I know people who want to really get through it. And they're just, at the, sometimes you just feel like you're just getting through it. You're just doing it to do it. And that's probably not the best either, is it? So, here's where we are. We're going to start at Isaiah. Oh, man, I don't even have my own iPad open here. And I may go back and forth between my iPad and an open Bible here, because in the in the Bible I can see the larger um, the larger framework. Okay, so what I want to do is to start at Isaiah 14, because where we have been in the closing time of last week is that Isaiah's prophetic proclamations; these are God's words that Isaiah is bringing many of them being words of judgment because of the pervading nature of sin, right? Sin is pervasive. You see, what is the fundamental problem in, in, in Ukraine? It is, it is the fact that Putin and so many of his um, fellow Russians have embraced, they've embraced sin. They've embraced... They've embraced darkness. Um, they've wrapped their arms around the spiritual forces of wickedness and, and have just given themselves over to it. And um, it's a, just a terrible thing to behold. I've read stories of, of Putin talking about growing up, you know, with the Russian Orthodox mother and who, who taught him different things. And I don't know. I, I guess it's, he's, just, he's just forgotten. It's just so easy, so tempting to give yourself over to the darkness, give yourself over to sin. Um, but as Peter writes, we are called out of the darkness into the light so that we can proclaim God's marvelous acts. So here is a map of... Babylon, Babylonium. Whoops, there we go. One more. Almost there. You know, for a minute there. Yeah. Putin kind of sounded like Darth Vader. Well, right? You know, he, he gave in to the darkness. And well, you he know. Was good. Sure. I mean, 
the Russian army, in essence, is the Death Star as far as a lot of Ukraine has been concerned, right? Yeah. Just, just blasting indiscriminately. So anyway, so as I said last week, Babylon becomes the great superpower enemy of Israel. The great, the great superpower enemy of Israel. And it will come after Isaiah's time, but it is not surprising as the Isaiah, as the scroll of Isaiah is pulled together, that the prophecies against Babylon are given like they're they're right up there with the prophecies against Assyria, which is the great superpower in um in Isaiah's time. Babylon's time will come another century and a half later or so, but um Babylon holds this place in the Jewish imagination of the great superpower enemy of Israel. And as Patty brought out last week, that is why in the book of Revelation, Rome is cast as the whore of Babylon. It's all connected in that way. It's all connected in that way. So here is a map of Babylon. So let me just explain a couple geographic things. That red arrow, the double-ended red arrow that I have there on the map in Palestine, in Israel, I'll explain in a second. When you go to the east, that area on this particular map is green, encompassing the whole Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, Mesopotamia. That area is Babylonia. Babylon lies in the heart of it. Um, and it is modern-day Iraq. Modern-day Iraq. The Iraqis today are the descendants, basically, of the Babylonians. And if you move further east, on into the yellow section of the map, you come to, the, to a later yet superpower that will supplant the Babylonians, and that's Persia. And the Persia is basically modern-day Iran. Okay? So, it's, I always find it kind of interesting to take these ancient, ancient peoples and, and places and link them up to today. So, Babylonia is basically Iraq. Persia is basically Iran. And I put the double-sided arrow right there on the, on the, on the top of Israel. Because what I want you to grasp is that Israel is like their geographic location created many, many headaches for them because they were like the, the superhighway that these great powers would use to get at each other because down to the south and to the west of Israel is the great power called Egypt, right? And if you go east of Israel you begin to run into this great Arabian desert, in, which is just not really very practical for armies to traverse. So they would go up the um, Tigris-Euphrates River Basin, over around to where like Damascus is, and then down through Israel into Egypt. So we have poor Israel is always getting pushed and shoved by these great powers as they're trying to get to one another. And the most symbolic of them all is Babylon, Babylonia. 
Is that clear, Patty? Absolutely. Any questions? Nope. Don't you love my maps? I know Steve likes the maps. He sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's just read a little bit of chapter fourteen, but we're not gonna we're not gonna get um we're not gonna get bogged down here. Okay. We've just come out of a long section of judgment on Babylon. And then the scroll reads, Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob, which is a way of speaking of God's people, right? The Israelites. Once again, he will choose Israel and he will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Right? That's the big plan. The big plan is that all the nations would come streaming to Mount Zion. It's a beautiful way of speaking of the world being put to right and war and, and, and uh, death being, being, being shoved aside. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and will make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. And as I said last week, when you come to these scrolls, you often have to get, you just have to know that you're going to run into a lot of places that express the Israelites' desire for, for the tables to be turned, for vengeance, basically. It, it just, it's just, it's just part of the honesty of Scripture. Just part of the honesty of Scripture. Verse 3. On the day Yahweh gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil, and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And so it turns right back into what? The focus becomes back on, on Babylon again, and um, it's almost this taunt. There's there's this sense because, of course, all great superpowers fail. In the end, um, they all do. So here we go. Here's the taunt. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord, Yahweh, has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at peace, are at rest and at peace, and they break into singing, even the trees, even the bushes, even the junipers. Right? So it is this ever-recurring theme that what? That in the end, God wins. Right? And the superpowers of this world, um, which is what we're talking about right now, who think that they don't need God and they can get by with just their own counsel among one another, they will all be brought low. In the end, it is God who wins. It is God who triumphs. And, and, and the evidence for that is the graveyard of superpowers that stretches back thousands of years. We dig up their mummies and we uncover their monuments. It's like I said last week, I hope you did go back and read the poem Ozymandias, read by Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. That's the whole idea. And it's the truth. And, and, and the scroll carries that, that truth, you see? 
so um, it's just, it can it can be easy to lose sight of that in the course of one's life. Our lives are what seventy years, eighty years, ninety years if we're if we're specially blessed. It's not much, not much at all, in the larger scheme. Um, and it's easy to lose confidence that God wins. But our confidence that God wins stems from our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the two pieces that link together. Okay, so I'm going to have to open up a little light here now. I got. Oh, would you like me to reopen the window here? Oh, it's not going to help me much here. I'm just, I'm just going to have a little light beside me here okay. as I'm looking at the open Bible, which will, which will help me a, a bit more than the iPad can right now. So. All right, so the rest of chapter 14 is all about this taunting of Babylon, okay? And what God is going to do to, to, to Babylon until we get to chapter... I have to, I had to make lots of cheat sheets for today, let me tell you. Until we get um, to verse 28 in chapter 14. And now things change, so why don't you go there? Verse 28 in chapter 14. This prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Doesn't matter what year it is. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you was broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be dar a darting venomous snake. The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root, I, will I, God, will destroy by famine. I will slay your survivors. It's a word of judgment on the Philistines. So who are the Philistines? You know, that's a name we need to know because they are pretty major characters. And particularly back in the book of Judges and in the book of Kings and stuff, in the time of David and Samson and Goliath was a Philistine. Oh. So you know what I did? I brought a map. Yay. <laughs> okay next map up please so look at the arrow on the left of your screen the big long arrow that is pointing to the area called Philistia which tells you what that they are a coastal people and that they are actually living in the lands that God gave to the Israelites. And it's believed that the, Philistine, that the Philistines were a seafaring people who came down from the Greek islands, from the Aegean Sea, somewhere up there, and settled on the coast in, you know, the 13th, 12th, 13th, 12th century BC. And they were a constant thorn in the side to the Israelites because they're like thrust right there together. I mean, from the coastline to Jerusalem is only like, how long a drive is it, Patty, today? An hour? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a very, it, it, Israel's a very narrow, narrow place. So they're all thrust into a very small piece of land. And the Philistines had quite, quite the history uh, with the Israelites. So it isn't surprising that in the scroll of Isaiah, you find a passage, not a long one, kind of a short one compared to some other people, 
that um, is a, a word of judgment against the Philistines. And then if you go down, look down your Bible to chapter 15, verse 1, you find now we're going to come to a prophecy against Moab. And I have Moab on the same map. On, they are on the eastern side of the, of the Dead Sea. And another piece of advice, don't imagine that it all looks as dead as it does now. Now it looks dead. Probably didn't look so dead, you know, um, uh, a few thousand years ago. But the Moabites were a people that from time to time were one of the enemies of Israel. Notice that they are east of the Dead Sea, which means that they are not occupying any land that God gave to the Israelites. But, nonetheless, they were enemies from time to time. Now, who is the most, Patty, who is the most, this is, can I ask you a test, a quiz? Yes. Who's the most famous Moabite that you can think of? Oh gosh, I know it's it's from You're, you know it's from Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Naomi flees because of famine, he, she and her family flee. They go. They head to Moab, on the other side of the Dead Sea, and she meets Naomi. Wait, she meets Ruth, mm -hmm. and she meets Orpah, and of course Ruth becomes uh, goes back with Naomi to Israel. Uh, but Ruth is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. And it's really, in the story of, of Ruth, it's terribly significant because she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And you really, you really begin to grasp then, if you haven't before, that this business of being among God's people is not a matter of DNA. You do not have to have had the blood of Abraham flowing in your veins, showing up on a DNA test or something like that. She says to Naomi, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. It was always, as far as God was concerned, a matter of faith, which is the story in Genesis 15, and you're reminded about it when you meet Ruth the Moabite. But nonetheless, Israel had Moabite, you would count amongst the enemies of Israel. So look at 15, first few verses. A prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab, that's a place, don't care where it is, is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Debon goes up to its temple, to its place to weep. Moab wells over Nebo and Mediba. It's just this picture of a people who who because they're not embracing their creator and they have chosen to make war on God's people have faced ruin, will face ruin. It's, it's, and the fact that God chose Abraham doesn't really exempt everybody else on the planet 
Um, that's a point Paul makes at the beginning of the book of Romans, that, that really humanity should be able to get some of this by just opening your window and and grasping and look at the world around you and grasp that there is a creator and, and, and the rest of it. Um, but that first chapter 15 and chapter 16, my cheat sheet here again, chapter 15 and chapter 16 is um, the, 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 the prophecy against Moab. And it's, you know, let's look at one poignant little piece of it just for a second. Look at verse 10 in chapter 16. These are God's words through Isaiah. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to the shouting. My heart, my heart laments for Moab like a heart, like a harp. My inmost being for Kir Harathaseth. Even when the world falls into wickedness, God still weeps. God is grieved. In fact, friends, let's do this. Let's put a marker right there and go to Genesis 6 so I can show you something about God's heart. If I don't sneeze, if I sneeze, I'm sorry. I try not to be too... If I bolt out of my chair, <laughs> it's to sneeze in a part of the room where I won't scare the life out of you. Okay, Genesis. Wow, Scott. All the way back, all the way back to Genesis 6. This is this is the bridge leading to the, the bridge chapter leading to the story of Noah. Okay? So look at chapter 6, verse 5. And this is really a place to come back to sometimes. I think when, maybe when you read the passages of judgment in Isaiah or elsewhere, and they can kind of seem overwhelming, it can make, it can make you wonder, well, what sort of, what, what, what sort of God is this? So look at Genesis 6, verse 5. Yahweh, God's name is used here. Yahweh saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Eugene Peterson puts it so well. He just says, evil, 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 everywhere, from morning till night. Verse 6. Yahweh regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And I prefer the translation, I think it's a little closer, out of the NRSV, that it grieved God to his heart. This was not how things were supposed to be. And even when you come to the prophecy against Moab, the enemies of Israel, 
Who knows what they've been up to? Even as they fall into ruin, because remember, judgment isn't really God waiting to smite everybody. It is people realizing and enduring the consequences of their own choices. And as they live out the consequences of their terrible choices and their ruin that will flow from those choices, God weeps for them. That's who God is. God weeps for them. I don't know why I turned off my light there. Okay. I have another place I'm going to show you, but that's going to be a little bit, a little bit later. Okay, so that's so. Any questions or anything over there, Patty? No. Okay, so we're on to chapter seventeen. Wow. <laughs> for See, the skeptical. Andy, this is how we're doing it. For the skeptical. <laughs> now we're going to come to. Yeah, I think in your Bible you probably have section headings, right, Patty? Yes. You have, do you have one here that says something like a prophecy against Damascus? The exact words. Okay, very good. Um, so let's see. We're going to go back to to the next map, and we're going to find Damascus. There's the little white arrow. Um, uh, the green is a map depicting the growing extent of the Assyrian Empire, which is the principal empire, superpower of most of Isaiah's day, of Isaiah's day. And that's Damascus. Here's the interesting thing. This Damascus is the same Damascus as is there now. When you read about Damascus, Syria on the evening news, yes. same city, same place. It's really quite remarkable in a way, I think. Um, and it was an important city then, as it is an important city now, Damascus. So is is that place where you're pointing to on the map, is that where Paul had his encounter? He was on Jesus? his way. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. Okay. He was on the road to Damascus to round up Christians and bring them back to, back to Rome to be dealt with. Dealt with as that cult of troublemakers. Yeah, or worse. Okay, so let's. We're going to read a little further into this one, just because I want you to. I want you to hear it. Okay. All right. Verse chapter seventeen, verse one: A prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and left to flocks, which will be, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares Yahweh Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. He will be as when reapers harvest the standing grain gathering the grain in their arms, as when someone gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephraim. This is, this, is, Israel's going to fall on very hard times. The ten northern tribes are going to be swept away by the Assyrians. And Israel is going to be reduced to, I think, the very map I see that little orange thing there. 
the great kingdoms of, of David and Solomon, that's what they're reduced to, wasted away. Wasted away in the metaphor here in chapter 17, verse 6. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares Yahweh, the God of Israel. Right? That is this, it's again with this remnant idea that there will be those left. Yes, it does appear that it's all coming to an inglorious doom, but there will be those left to carry on God's purposes. Verse 7, In that day people will look to their Maker, and they will turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands. They will, ha they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made, which means that they will put away all of the pagan stuff that they have been embracing for centuries. <coughs> centuries. Sometime we'll, we'll, do, we'll do the Book of Kings. Um... Uh, this way and for centuries that's what they've been doing is embracing these pagan gods and goddesses and the Asherah poles though those are those pagan gods and goddesses just pagan religions in general verse 9 in that day the strong cities which they left because of the Israelites will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God your Savior. You have not remembered the rock your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on that day you set them out, you make them grow. And on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Right? So that's that's kind of what, what happens. There's a long relationship between Israel and the kingdoms to the north, of course, like Aram and you know, the Syrians and the rest. Um, but this this embracing of, of pagan religions, whether it's by the Israelites or by anybody, is it's an it's an affront to God. So Okay. Any comments about that, Patty? No. Okay. Well I'm staying a little quiet. Trying to help okay. you power through, you know. Now we're going to a place. I had to look up on a map. Yes. We're going to the land of Kush. Kush. <laughs> Kush. So let me um, go back to the maps. We're going to go to Kush because they become the object in chapter 18. So here's where Kush is. It is south of Egypt, which means today it would be known as what? Ethiopia. Okay. So I am at chapter 18, right? Let me just get there with the iPad here. 
Okay. I wonder what those things on the map are that are the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth cataracts. Right? Yeah, you know, um, it's... I can't really say. I think it's something I used to know, but I have since come to not know. Probably because we've never studied Kush before. <laughs> right? It's not yeah, but thing. Yeah, but you see, but as you go... As you go, as you go, no, the Nile River flows northward, right? Yes. And as you go up the Nile River southward, right, um, closer and closer to its origin, you get further and further into some of Egypt's past, like Luxor and stuff like that. So I'm guessing that's what all that's related to. But I don't know, so I'm not going to pretend to know. There we go. Wikipedia out there, folks, we can we can crowdsource this. <laughs> okay. 18 verse 1. Translation difficulties right off the bat. Woe to the land of whirring wings. Really? Whirring wings along the river of Cush may be a reference to locusts. Woe to the land of locusts along the rivers of Cush. Locusts, you know, have you ever seen a locust? Um, ever seen a grasshopper so big it freaked you out? Yes. I have seen some in Florida. I would have sworn they could eat small children. We lived down there for a short while. They were big, big, big. Well, locusts are pretty, pretty good size. And of course, they swarm and they were a terror for the ancient world because they could swarm in and consume all of a crop. And for these ancient people, it would be a year before they could plant again, right? And so they were... Locusts represented real famine, real starvation for these people. Um, woe to the land of whirring wings, probably locusts, along the rivers of Cush or Ethiopia, which sends envoys by sea and papyrus boats over the water because they have access to the Nile. Go swift messengers to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. Look at verse 4. This is what Yahweh says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place. Like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoot with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches. They will all be left to the mountains of prey and to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer, the wild animals all winter. And, you know, honestly... I get the Egyptian thing, but I don't fully get the Cush thing. I need to read more about why Cush, why the that far south would be would 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 be given such a prophecy. And I'm just guessing it goes back to the heyday of the Egyptian Empire when 
the area of Kush was part of that empire, and so now they get they get sort of pulled into the prophecies that we're soon going to see against Egypt. But I just honestly, looked it up really quick, and mm-hmm. um, it the runes look quite amazing. It says that it was the uh, a powerful kingdom from the 8th to the 4th centuries B.C., possibly the greatest ancient African civilization. Um, it was known also as the land of the black pharaohs. Okay. It's African. But, but there's, yes, there's a lot, lot of rooms. A lot, lot of stuff. And yes. Mona said, her study Bible said, well, Kush is actually like modern Ethiopia is a little fur, fur, further south. So... Which would lead you to think, okay, so the big deal with Kush um, is that it is, um, it just gets wrapped up in the whole Egyptian thing. And of course, you know, the problem with Egypt is that they're the ones who, who, who enslaved God's people. But Kush gets their own extensive um, prophecy of judgment. It is, it's, it's like, What's in this section? Let's get in the helicopter again. In this section, it begins with the judgments against Assyria and then Babylon, the great superpowers, and then we come to the section in the scroll where section after section goes around talking about the judgment on each of Israel's enemies, and even as we've seen, there will be words of judgment for. For Jerusalem, it isn't that the Israelites are exempt from this, but neither are their neighbors. Neither are their neighbors. So, <laughs> okay, we are running lots about the Cushites. Yes. Aren't we? Yes. So, in, in, in chapter 19, right after the... prophecy against Cush, we get the prophecy against Egypt, not surprisingly. Okay? Now, when you come to Egypt, you can't be surprised that I mean, Egypt is if you take if you take Babylon as the great superpower who will overwhelm Jerusalem and destroy the temple and send the exiles off I mean, Egypt is always there as the enslavers of the Hebrews and um, the place where the Hebrews escaped, even to the point of where, just think about the story, the Christmas story at the beginning of Matthew. Where do Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus head? To Egypt. They head to Egypt. And so there's a verse... In Matthew, that's a fulfillment of Scripture talking about, I called my son out of Egypt. And it's used there to talk about Jesus. Whereas, you know, in its earlier Old Testament context, it's talking about, it's talking about Israel. So let, let's just read a little bit of the prophecy against, um, against Egypt. A prophecy against Egypt. See, 
The Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols, they will consult the spirits of the dead, the mediums, the spiritists. I will hand them over to a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord. Yahweh Sabaoth. The waters of the river will dry up, the riverbed will be parched and dry. And of course that's enormously significant because the Nile River is what made Egypt Egypt. What made Egypt the breadbasket of the of the Mediterranean of the Roman Empire? So, look at verse sixteen. We drop out of the um, at least in the NIV, we drop out of the poetry a little bit. In that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that Yahweh Almighty raises against them, and the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what Yahweh Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun." In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the heart of Egypt, and a monument to Yahweh at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. So Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge Yahweh. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to Yahweh and keep them. Yahweh will strike them with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to Yahweh, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. So, yeah. You know... I don't want the map on. I didn't know the map was on. There we go. I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't think I'm an improvement over the map. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> you know, we we read, we we read these, and they really are challenging, aren't they? Because if you were to ask me, well, Scott, you know, like were these fulfilled sometime in the past? I'm. I would really have to say no. I think it has to be looking ahead to a day that is really still yet to come. A day, certainly these great kingdoms all fell on hard times and basically disappeared. But the healing that is promised, the worship that is promised, has to be part of the great renewal and transformation that comes with the arrival of the new heavens and new earth. And and that's what makes that's what makes the prophets so hard to read, I think. They they 
because I think in some ways the time frames get get mixed up, whether they're talking about something near-term, medium-term, long-term, it all gets in there together, um, and just makes these oracles, these messages, such a challenge for us, and why in this section they just turn very, very repetitive. <sighs> I see Steve did not like getting rid of the map, did he? <laughs> okay, so I'm looking for, look at chapter 20. What do we get now? A prophecy against Egypt and Cush. Okay. Great. And who is going to be God's instrument in this prophecy against Egypt and Cush? The supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria. And um, so... Let's just read a little bit of it. It's one of these enacted, I don't know if it's a parable or not, but an, an, an enacted judgment. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod, that's where Shipstock, who are going to go to Jerusalem today, we are, we've been there, came to Ashdod and attacked it and captured it. At that time, Yahweh spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. And Yahweh then said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared. Why? To Egypt's shame. These are honor and shame cultures. They're all honor and shame cultures. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be dismayed and put to shame. And the Assyrians are the instrument for that. I'm going to go to the maps again for a second. Here. Going back. Here. Okay. So you can see what happened. See the, um, this, this map outlines the growing extent of the Assyrian Empire. And you can see how they're the darkest green, which is the, la, la, the biggest extent of the Assyrian Empire, is across from Israel into Egypt. So the Assyrians become God's instrument against Egypt. Remember, because for ancient people and for the Israelites, God is really the first cause of all things. The Bible is not interested in geopolitical machinations. God is interested in people turning to God and coming to God for assistance. Remember, so much of this began when the king of Israel tried to do a treaty and stuff with, with the Assyrians to protect the kingdom of Judah. And God said, well, why did you go to him? You should have come to me. And that, that general theme is one I think we probably need to heed more than we do. So 
The prophecy against Egypt and Cush is very brief. It's very short. That chapter 20 is like six verses long, right? So now go to Isaiah 21. What do we have here? Who's in our focus here, Patty? Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't got there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say I'll give everybody time to get there. A prophecy against the desert by the sea. <laughs> yes. That desert by the sea is... Babylon. Babylon. Okay. This is a prophecy against Babylon again. And and the kingdoms that came to make up Babylon. Again, because it was the great um <laughs> the sort of symbolic of the great superpowers. So alright, so we're not we're not gonna read through all that. Go down to verse eleven in that chapter. And what do we find? Let me go forward in my map selection here. Back to Cush. Then Egypt. Egypt and Cush. Then, in 21, back to Babylonia. It really is quite the geographic journey that you're it on is. in this, isn't it? Yes. And no then way. in verse 11. We're at Duma. Duma, or Edom. Right? So, because Edom was another important kingdom to the south on the east of of Judah and they are the descendants of Esau Jacob's brother who had the nickname Edom because it meant red and and he had red hair and when he um, uh, parts ways with Jacob he heads down there and those are who the Edomites are um Okay, and so there's just 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 a short prophecy against them, and then we come to the next slide, which is a prophecy against Arabia. Also, um, look at verse. Look at the last verse of chapter twenty-one. This is what Yahweh says to me. This is Isaiah. Within one year, as a servant bound by contract could count on it, all the splendor of Kedar will come to the end. The survivors of the archers, the warriors of Kedar will be few. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. So it's just this travelogue of prophecies and words of judgment, okay? And in chapter 22, where do we head? Going to Tyre. No. 22? Oh, I'm sorry. I went one too many. Yeah. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Wow. Sure, of course, because God weeps at the at the pagan nations all around Israel who who don't who don't know God. Right? You can go back to Genesis 6 and see and, and see that. But but it's but there's but Jerusalem doesn't. This is a prophecy against the Valley of Vision. This is this is um, Jerusalem. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs? You town so full of commotion, you city of tumult and revelry. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled. They've been captured without even using the bow. 
All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. So I said, Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Verse, verse, look at verse 12. The Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and to put on sackcloth. But what did you do? There's joy, there's revelry, there's party, you're slaughtering cattle, killing the sheep, having a barbecue, eating meat, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we will die. Is that really God's way? No. no. And then in verse 14, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing, Isaiah's hearing. Till your dying day, the sin will not be atoned for says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Even, even Israel sits under judgment. They should have known. I mean, you can make excuses for the enemies. They don't, have, they don't know God's law, but the Israelites do know God's law. They know how they're supposed to live. They're supposed to worship God and supposed to love God and love others. All of that stuff from Jesus comes out of the law of Moses. Jesus doesn't invent any of it. Comes out of the law of Moses. Love your neighbor. Love the Lord. Take care of the widows and orphans and all the rest of it. And they simply would not live that way. They insisted upon living the way that all their neighbors lived. So how could you be surprised? that when the neighbors are rolling on into their own destruction, their own judgment, that Jerusalem would be spared. And that, my friends, is the key to understanding how the Israelites viewed what happened to them. When the northern kingdom is overrun, and 150 years later, when the southern kingdom is overrun completely and the city falls and the, the captives are marched to Babylon and the temple is destroyed, how do they view that? They view that as a consequence of their own sin. They are in essence, in essence, going to jail. When they go to Babylon, they're going to jail. And they're going to jail as punishment for their sins. Um, there's a great story in the book of Kings about one of, this is really the last good king of, uh, of the kingdom of Judah, King Josiah. And during his time, they're working in the temple and they find the book of the law, the law of Moses, which means first that they had lost it. You can't find something unless you don't have it. They had lost it, right? And they're not even sure that it is the book of the of the law. So they have to call a prophet over. They don't go to Jeremiah. They go to a woman, a prophetess named Hulda, who says, yes, this is, this is the real deal. And the king, who's very young at the time, tears his clothes 
because he realizes how far, how far they have gone from being faithful to God, from living as God taught them to, to live. The, the giving of the law of Moses is a blessing because God is God. God is everybody's God. There is no other God. And this God told the Israelites how to live with God <laughs> upstairs in the house, so to speak. And and so here, are we surprised that Jerusalem gets their own words of condemnation? No. We, we should not be. We should not be. Why don't you... Um, I want to take a moment again to, to talk about God's heart because it's so easy to lose sight of that in these passages. I'm going to give you a challenge maybe. Find the book of Hosea. H-O-S-E-A. Chapter 2. Verse... Scott, then that last thing on Isaiah, uh -huh. is that let us eat and drink, you know, and be merry. Is that where we get that saying I from? think it might be. Caught my eye. I don't know if it's the only place in Scripture, but that's a good question. It's amazing. There's certain websites that will that will bring out all the places in the Bible that are just part of our culture and language and the expressions we use. Between the Bible and the Shakespeare, you find most of them. <laughs> so turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Okay, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the metaphor before we start. The metaphor here is the relationship between God and his people. Because God has come to a man named Hosea and told him to marry a prostitute and to be a loving husband to her and a loving father to the children that she has by her customers while she's plying her trade. And God says the way that all of that makes you feel, Hosea, is the way that I feel when Israel goes chasing after all these pagan gods and goddesses. Right? Because this, the, the, the violation of the marriage covenant in the Old Testament is the dominant theme for the violation of the, of the covenant um, they entered into with Moses, that, that the marriage and adultery becomes a way to talk about the Israelites' abandonment of God. And that's exactly how it is here in Hosea chapter 2, except it's just just so striking. Um, so I'm, I'm going to... Look at, look at the last lines of verse 4 where it begins, she said, she said, so in the metaphor, this is Israel, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. And then God says, therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. 
She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for what? For the worship of Baal. That's the Canaanite god. How many times do we do that? We fail to give God credit for things. We think it's all us or somebody else. We, we don't take the time to be as grateful as we should be for the blessings that we have and acknowledge that in the beginning, right, it all comes from God. Our very lives come from God, right? So verse 9, and you can, you can hear it accelerating. It's like these words of judgment in Isaiah. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool. I'll take back my linen intended to, intended to cover her naked body. So now while I, I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals, it's clear now, you know, this is Israel, Israel, Israel. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers, these pagan gods and goddesses that Israel would give credit for when they had good harvests. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days. She burned incense to the Baals, these pagan gods. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, and you think you're about to get <laughs> the skies falling in. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. I'm going to give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of hopelessness a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days that she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the skies, the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will, this is God speaking to the Israelites. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge Yahweh. There you go. I don't even have to read on. When you read the prophets, even through the long sections of judgment that we're reading in Isaiah now, which are quite long, and it takes away, it takes away um, when we come together next week, we'll be into some sections of praise and, and hope. But it, there's a lot of it in Isaiah. 
um, but it still functions like it does in this much shorter section of Hosea. Yes, we do live with the consequences of, of our actions, but it's not the end of the story because God is a God of compassion and faithfulness and kindness and mercy and grace. That's where you always have to end it. Just like right here in Hosea. That's why I love this chapter 2 in Hosea so much. It does it so well. So, okay. With that, I think we're kind of done for today. Yes, it's about that time. Maybelle said she enjoyed this teaching so much. Well, okay, Maybelle. Next, <laughs> good, I'm glad because we are tackling some tough portions. So next time we're going to get, we're going to go, I think, from Isaiah 23, we'll make our way all the way through Isaiah 35. Wow. Yes, because it gets very... I mean, maybe we'll get we'll get bogged down, but I, I, I don't think so. We'll see. There's some really maybe there's some pa portion, portions passages we'll we'll want to sit with a bit. But yeah, I never thought we would do that much in one in one day. Here we go. And neither did you, Patty. I did. And neither did Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're still there, Andy. <laughs> Um, I did see online Sharon and Bob Kerr were on, and um, we prayed for them yesterday in our Sunday class, but um, for those of you who weren't there, or I just want to add this again, um, we love Sharon and Bob, and just in this past week, Sharon did find out she has a cancerous tumor on her kidney that is going to have to be removed, and she doesn't have the date of surgery yet, but it's going to be very soon. So if you would just please keep Sharon in prayer and Bob. Um, I know he'll be a wonderful caregiver. And just for the wisdom and skill for her doctors and a complete and full healing from this for Miss Sharon. Very much. So um, if you would just close in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, so much for providing scripture for us Um we thank you, God, to have the time to just be able to go over some of these hard hard parts of Scripture. Sometimes they seem a little monotonous, Lord, but it is good for us to just be reminded of, you know, just be reminded of God, what God wants from us. And certainly that God is um, a generous and wonderful God, but also he is a, a, a selfish God. He says that to us over and over, that he wants no other gods before him. And we can see that, Lord, just by reading these um, these chapters in Isaiah. Um, you know, he says nothing truly but condemnation for those that do. And even his beloved Israel, when he is very disappointed in his people. So we pray, Lord, that you would just be with this group as we get through another week here um we pray god that you would hold us close we pray god for good health we pray god that you would help keep us safe we pray for your wisdom and your discernment uh, we pray god for our world leaders who many right now are trying to make big decisions as to what type of support 
they're going to give in the eastern part of Europe to our um, friend Ukraine. We just pray for the Ukrainian people, Lord. We pray for you to soften the hearts of these dictators that are causing so much pain and so much grief, God, right now in our world. Um, Lord, hold us close. Bring us back together next week. Many of us, God, we pray you'll bring us back safely tomorrow in Piro Hall. All this we pray, Lord, in the great and glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Adios, everybody. Bye, guys. See enjoy some the, of you tomorrow enjoy at the 12, rest of your day. Piro Hall. Yes. Stay weather aware tonight. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.